kids. A minute ago, you said you didn't care if he drinks. He said a little drink. You're tearing me apart! <laughs> what? You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! That's a fine way to behave. Well, you know who he takes after. Oh, James Dean. I had no idea until I finally watched this film that yeah. that's probably the origin of you're tearing me apart, Lisa, in the oh, yeah, room. I had no idea. He's that's so goofy crazy. in this movie. He's Such goofy. a weirdo. Total goof. Um, I was not expecting that. He doesn't come across as like, I, you know, growing up with the the image or the icon of James mm-hmm. Dean, it's always like ultra, ultra cool. He's not that cool in this movie. He's right. kind of a weirdo. It kind of uh, made me think of like the image of Brad Pitt versus like Brad Pitt's usual like weirdo goofball performances. Yeah. Where it's like, he's got that, you know, sleek kind of. Like speed train? <laughs> Bull train. Which you call Whatever. speed train? Whatever. Same thing. You know what I was talking about. Yeah. 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 But like, then you actually like let him do his thing on camera and he can be super idiosyncratic and. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, a fasc- I, I, fascinating guy. There's a lot going on behind him. Just in general, right. as a person. Yes, uh, yes. This is Film Trace, folks. This is where we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. It is the final episode of our set in the 1950s cycle. Uh, we are doing uh, Cool Hand Luke from 1967, and you heard from the clip there, Rebel Without a Cause from 1955. It's been a long journey, this one, I feel like, Chris, right? Yeah, yeah. This is definitely kind of, well, I mean, it's the first uh, themed season where we yeah. had seven episodes instead of six, and it has also just been like, you know, we, we've been trekking along, uh, since Asteroid City came out back in June. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's been quite, uh, the summer and into September. I think we should maybe do a quick recap before we jump into Cool Hand Luke. Yeah, let's do it. I'm I'd okay. love to do it. Uh, so episode one was Asteroid City and the Fablemans. Um, that was a good episode. Interesting juxtaposition, those two movies. Um, then we did for the 2010s Tree of Life and the Master. Uh, we had uh, Ryan and Molly on for that episode. Um, and then uh, for the 2000s, or the Audis, as I call them, <laughs> uh, Far From Heaven, 2002, and then The Majestic. That was a fun episode with Brian uh, Egert, right? Yes. Um, and and then what did we do in the 90s? LA Confidential and This Boy's Life. And then in the 80s, we did Desert Hearts in a diner molly came back for that one and then the last episode we did it with andrea uh the last picture show and lenny the lenny bruce biopic from 1974 so yeah it's you know when we started out on this one because we wanted basically we want to do asteroid city i was like oh well it doesn't really sci-fi maybe but they're like what's what's just do set in the 1950s is kind of like a decade thing and see how mm-hmm. The depiction of the decade has changed since, uh, you know, the aforementioned decade in, in and of itself. And we're ending with Rebel Without a Cause, a movie from the actual decade itself. And it's been, I thought, I don't know, it's been a weird journey because the thing about it is, is the 50s has so many different layers and flavors to it that I, I was wanting there to be some sort of connecting thread by the end. But I don't know that there is. Right. I don't know if you felt that. <laughs> I mean, these I, movies change that. I don't know. 
I, I have two theories I want to posit for yes. you. Um, first of which is a little more surface level. I think, you know, and maybe it's just this somewhat, you know, arbitrary sampling of films throughout the years. I think with the exception of a couple titles, it feels like, I, I want to say that like the further you away that cinema got from the 1950s, the the not so great it became at capturing that feeling. I personally mm, think yeah. that Desert Hearts and Last Picture Show were probably the best, not only films overall, but also did the best job at showing and and like giving this uh, kind of portrait of. Yeah. Very two very different, but equally important and kind of heart wrenching, um, like slices of Americana. And yeah. I think that there's definitely like I liked a lot of the movies. Um, yeah, we 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 went over later, uh, closer to present day, including Asteroid City. But that in itself had so much to do with artifice because it's Wes Anderson, and uh, it was set in the fifties, but also was like a like a play within a play. Yeah, a lot of kind layers of thing. to it. Fablemans is like this autobiographical thing of, you know, like the quintessential boomer uh, filmmaker. Yeah. And so it's just like, it gets way more meta, you know, as time Very goes on. Very meta, yeah. Far From Heaven is a facsimile, right? Oh my God, of, yeah. Uh, um, what was that? Douglas Sirk. Douglas Sirk. I was going to say yeah. Fairbanks. I was like, wrong yeah. Douglas. Um <laughs> So I'm curious. Okay, that's my first one. So I, I, I want to hear your thoughts on that. But be, while it's fresh in my head, let me tell you the second one. Maybe yeah, I'll just, you can yeah. you can uh, uh, break down my possible rip them apart, theories. Rip yes, them apart. <laughs> dissect and deconstruct um, <laughs> with vitriol. Uh, yeah. So this one's the maybe the spicier one. Okay. Because I and I didn't really hit me until I was doing some background reading um, on Cool Hand Luke, and it seems to be. That the, the connective thread, if there is one, that I think is maybe even stronger than the more surface level like portrait theory, is that every single one of these movies, either in good, bad, complicated ways, is essentially showing this kind of um, it's it's depicting rebellion against. Uh, the status quo and the 1950s very much, you know, once again, surface level wise, you know, we think about stereotypes, just like we think about like the iconography of James Dean, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're told that it's like, you know, the, the picture perfect, like this is the birth of like the American suburban family and all that like post-war kind of thing. And mm -hmm. the thing that cinema, especially like the, the cinema that has, stood the test of time um it does is kind of peel back and suggest that this wasn't so much of a a settling into norms as it was like a last last gasp of rebellion against like institutional oppression okay yeah i mean i think that's the the one strand 
that I did gather is this sense of rebellion. Yeah. Right. And it's almost in like yeah, most of the, I mean, like the, the master without a doubt, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of um, vagabond rebellion against like any nature of a normal life, this boy's life. I mean, right in yep. your face, the rebellion yep. against an authoritative father. Um, last picture show, you know, Lenny, especially these last two movies, cool hand, Luke and rebel without a cause they, that it's funny. You mentioned this cause that is the exact thing that I was thinking about. Oh. when trying to kind of connect the dots of these movies. But like, I, I, you know, I sense that there's this connective tissue of rebellion against institutions, but I, I would say that like the rebellion to me is a little bit more nebulous than that. Right. In the sense that like, one of the things I struggle with is somebody who has, doesn't have a, big connection to this decade whatsoever. You know, we were both born in the eighties. So a good 30 years after this actually happened, but, um, I couldn't like cool hand Luke real without a cause. I struggle with this sense of rebellion and what it is they're fighting against because in like in our lives and coming up when we did, there's always been this very stereotypical fight against the man mm-hmm. or, you know, any institutions that exists or any sort of, yeah, any sort of like collective organization that exists. And to me, um, I don't know, it actually kind of signals something, I think, pretty negative. Yes. Like yes. This sort of, I don't know, it's almost tragic. There's a tragedy. Well, I think maybe you're seeing it in a different way that I see it. Though. Oh, oh, okay. Tragedy in the sense that, you know, if you ask um, anybody, like, what makes an American an American? Like, one of the things that's going to pop up over and over again is, like, this really, really strong sense of individuality. This idea that you can carve your own path in life and you can make your own way and create somebody whoever you want to be essentially that's a very an american idea that does not happen in most places in the world they don't think that way um and you see that the root of that ideology in these films where these people are making their own way and they're sort of you know hacking their way through life creating their own path but the you know the thing that sticks out to me and and i go back to like cool hand luke especially and rebel without a cause to a lesser degree you know it's sort of like what is the target of their derision? Hmm. What is the target of their discontent? I mean, especially when we look at Cool Hand Luke, you know, here's a guy who is essentially in prison for what? Not that long, maybe three years. I mean, like three years. Initially, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a short I stint. Mean, obviously, relative. there's a whole layer of like prison industrial complex, the police, all that's intertwined with this. But essentially, it's a guy who commits a, a pretty minor crime, gets a pretty severe sentence for it. But instead of, you know, writing it out or finding a way to make peace with it, he's constantly rebelling against everything. He's rebelling against the entire concept of being in prison. He rebels against the social system within the prison itself among the inmates. And he's seen as a hero and a Christ figure, mm-hmm. you know, the Christ stuff is like, eh, I don't know about that. Didn't, <laughs> didn't really play all that well to me. It's like, that sort of works, but not really. Um, but it's clear that he's a hero for fighting against these sort of, um, social norms that exist. But I just, I don't, I don't know. There's something about it that seems really naive to me that 
this is, and it feels very honest to me and authentic that that was a collective message coming out of this decade. Of course, going into the 60s, where there's a huge cultural revolution in the United States, which is often about this, you know, taking out institutions, you know, questioning capitalism, all this sort of stuff. But it's, you know, I always go to like um, how in our society, especially like a late capitalist society, we commodify everything. And that rebellion, the rebellion we've seen in these movies, Rebel Without a Cause, Golan Lake, was all commodified within a couple, you know, a couple of decades. And it's, just, I don't know, I just, I'm going off on a, a tangent per usual. Um, <laughs> no, but it's, but I that, think, exactly me, I can't figure out what they're rebelling against. Okay. Like, what is, what is, what is it? So I do, so, and I think Cool Hand Luke does it a little more cleanly. And I think that, I mean, yeah, t- everybody's mileage is going to vary in 2023 when it comes to Christ imagery. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, essentially, and uh, Matt Zoller cites on uh, RogerEber.com has an excellent essay um, about this because he essentially watched Cool Hand Luke in four different decades and nice. does a breakdown of like how it plays different, um, you know, 10 years later. Uh, and I, I mean, he, I think he hits the nail on the head in that essentially it comes down to the prison that mm-hmm. here it's literally the prison industrial complex. Yeah. And you could apply that allegory to basically any other of these movies, the, mm-hmm. the, the LAPD in LA confidential, right um the domestic family unit in this boy's life these are all like different forms of imprisonment and and so then that christ-like figure kind of comes back to you know uh you need somebody and i and he mentions this quote in particular um you know more so than the actual like uh imagery is um when uh luke says uh, he's like screaming as he's like, you know, caught for the umpteenth time trying to yeah. escape. And he says like, stop feeding off me where yeah. it's like, not only a rebellion against that system that you're stuck in, you're boxed in by, but also against this like notion of like uh, leaders being like profitized and seen as uh you know, the, the only way out. I mean, I, it's yeah. not a coincidence either. And Zoller Seitz says this in his essay too, which I think is kind of, is pretty on the nose is like the sixties is also, you know, the, you know, Beatles bigger than Jesus decade. Yeah. So you've got, you, and you, you, you could easily make those kind of parallels in um, all the other decades as well. And I mean, that's part of cinema's job too, for better or worse. Maybe it's one of its like embedded faults is that like we not only go there to escape and to like have catharsis from our own human experience, but we also go there to like idolize. And uh, I mean, I think it's interesting to kind of look at that through the lens of some of the more recent movies. Like I'm totally, maybe that's, that's my issue. I'm totally sucked in to asteroid city because of my idolization of Wes Anderson. I'm totally sucked in to, uh, uh, the tree of life because my idolization for Terrence Malick. So it's just like auteurs, like taking the place of these rebel figures in the narratives of these films. No, I could definitely see that. I mean, the the sort of use of iconography in 
Cool Hand Luke is interesting because like you say, what makes that film special or makes it sort of pop, at least to me, is that transformation of Luke going from this outsider who's rebellious and the transition happens, you know, kind of gradually. It's first the fight where he doesn't sort of give up and, you know, basically gets beaten nearly to death. And then it's the the hard, famous hard-boiled egg scene. And they, what's interesting about it is we see this transformation of an outsider into you know, some sort of like savior figure to these prisoners. But even within that, like you point out there, it undercuts it. Like there's the whole part where they, he sends the photograph in the magazine and it's with the two beautiful women and Mm. the entire um, prison camp is like enthralled with this photo. Yeah. It's like, it's almost like one of those saint cards or something. Um, And they're just it gives them hope it gives them a sense of freedom but then when you remember he gets caught and comes back and basically well this is all made up this wasn't even a real thing and then the guy rips it up there's like there is that constant kind of back and forth of they need somebody like this to get them through the day and give them hope but it's also a false prophet yeah and it's like this back and forth which gets i mean gives the film a lot of interesting tension i mean even at the end um, I forget his name, but George Kennedy, who won the Oscar, you know, plays a supporting actor. Yes. Um, he, you know, kind of acts as like the Judas at the end of the church scene and kind of gives him up and then basically gets him killed. But then the end of the movie is him telling this story about how he was smiling when they're wheeling him off. It's like that. <laughs> yeah. like, that's what really gives it to me. A lot of the inertia and power is that it doesn't really play it one way or the other. It tries to sort of weave in and out and it doesn't clearly say that like, Oh, you know, these, all these prophets are false or they don't, you know, they're not needed. It also says, it says both. It says they are needed and gives people hope, but they're also kind of false at the same time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that like, uh, maybe that's, and I'll, it kind of comes back to this idea of Cool Hand Luke being so kind of sparse when it comes to these kinds of thematics and characterizations, where it's like, and and maybe that's why it, it hits so hard. I don't know. I mean, I we briefly talked about this at when we um, you because you watched it for the first time, right? Yeah, I've never seen it before. Right. And this was probably my third or fourth watch, but definitely my first watch in a while mm-hmm. um, where, you know, it hits it. Number one, it hits way different as an adult, I think, because like uh, I probably watched it the first two or three times, like either in my late teens or early 20s. And also you have this kind of um <sighs> I don't want to, I don't know. Would you say it's not, would you say it's nihilist? Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's a, there's um, yeah, there is an undercurrent that kind of screams of nihilism. Right. Um, Which becomes more and more definitive as the film nears its, you know, inevitable conclusion. Yeah. I mean, you could make an argument that it's more like existentialist nihilism. Sure. Okay. Okay. Like, you know, he, yeah, he's rebelling against something deeper than just the institution. He's rebelling yeah. against life itself or something. Yeah. You know? And and like the trapped nature of the, yeah. the those that have idolized him um yeah. in the prison. And I think that's just like so much starker than all of the other films, maybe 
maybe with the one exception of Lenny. Yeah, Lenny is um, pretty dark. <laughs> right. It, it, it ends, you know, on a not so great note. Um, are maybe last picture show too, but there is the still kind of this like there's, there's a hope there. There's yeah. a little, yeah, there's a glimmer of hope. And yeah. there's at least a glimmer of hope in all the other films. Um, yeah. if not more. And so I think that it's quite interesting then going back, kind of circling back to like the my theory about, you know, as the further we get from the decade, is this just like, this is how nostalgia works, right? The further we get away from the, like, it's like Cool Hand Luke, no hope. Last Picture Show, glimmer of hope. Desert Hearts, optimistic, but also very like frank about the discrimination yeah. of women and gay people. Uh, and then, you know, it kind of goes on from there. LA Confidential has like this triumphant, uh, victory at the end, but also well, the, the suggestion yeah, that it's going to yeah. continue on, right? Yeah, he's just perpetuating the corruption that created the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, yeah, there's the none of the none of these are as stark as Cool and Luke, right? It's just right. like this the um, almost guttural sense of it, it feels very New Hollywood, right? Yeah, yeah. Sixty seven, right during the start of that sort of period, and it, it has that vibe to it. It's like a there's no there's no holding back in, in sort of the messaging I would say right. What did you think uh, to kind of touch on this new Hollywood aspect because that's mm-hmm. kind of another kicker, especially when we transition to talking about Rebel Without a Cause, yeah. um, and how I mean there's lots of similarities and parallels, but also a very distinctly different uh, directing style and um, acting style, right? Yeah. Uh, that schism between the fifties and sixties in terms of cinematic history. I'm curious what you thought, uh, having just watched it for the first time and in the, you know, in succession order with all the other movies, we, um, did episodes about that were set in the fifties. Like, it's cause you didn't see it, it, I mean, well, I guess I should ask, did you kind of see the ending coming from a mile away? The, in, it was, in, in cool cool look. Yeah. Uh, no, I had no okay. idea. Because yeah. that, that's one of the things that was like, I remember being fascinated by, as a young person watching this, is it was one of my earliest memories of like, seeing a classic movie that wasn't, that didn't like hinge on like, a very yeah. clear plot. Right? Like it's True, yeah. characterization. It was like vignettes almost yes, connected yes. together. Yeah. And, and that feeling of it, because once again, yeah, I went into my first viewing of it i believe not knowing where it was going and that kind of like gut punch of the ending because we're just like so socialized at a very young age to think that like if there is a rebel going up against an institution you know the only way to like end that narratively in a satisfying way is to have them you know emerge victorious Right. Yeah, win in some way. But yeah, I, you know, I think that like you could argue that Luke wins, mm. right? On some level, oh, because wins, he he never acquiesces. That, right? yeah. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, like he never like you know bends to the knee, so to speak, and like bows down before them. Um, but that is such 
that is such a style of this time. In exactly. American exactly. Cinema. It really is. Like, it, I think it lands differently now as someone, especially because the way film has gone over the last, I would say, 10 years, 10, 15 years, where there's been a lot of resurgence of that style in terms of the starkness. I'm thinking of like movies like Uncut Gems or Good Time. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's just this, if, you know, there's a built-in sense of yeah, this could end poorly, and that's that's okay. That's not that shocking. But I can imagine back in 1967, someone going to see this. Oh, it's a prison movie. You mm-hmm. know, it's a mm-hmm. uh, guys rebel against the authority movie. Obviously, they're going to come out okay. They're you know they're going to escape from prison. Like the town. God, I hit the end of the movie. That movie. Um, <laughs> it's like, they get away. You know, they get away. It's like a happy ending. Um, and it actually kind of reminded me a little bit of a prison movie uh, that came out in was the forties, Brute Force. Um, I don't okay, know, I don't, I don't know. That. No, With Burt Lancaster. Okay. Very violent film. Like you see this movie, and you're like, well, this is absurd that they released this back in the forties. I mean, this is disgusting. <laughs> um, and it ends like very awfully. Um, like bad in terms of like what happens to the characters, and I was like, oh yeah, kind of like it's kind of like that to some degree, where they rebel and they kind of lose. Um, then a lot of them don't make it, mm-hmm. and yeah, with Cool Hand Luke, it's I do think that there's this there's an existentialism was really big in the United States in the 60s and 50s, right? Um, so it's like there's yeah there's a sense it kind of reminds me a little bit of The Stranger by Camus, yeah, right, where it's just this guy is kind of doomed on some level, mm-hmm. um, but he still is able to sort of keep a sense of individuality and power over his life. Right. He never right. kowtows to the system that has. Yeah, exactly. Him. Yeah. yeah. Even though he's basically condemned to death. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. So like, where would you, where would you place this in, especially having just seen it for the first time um, yeah. among like, your usual, you know, stable of sixties, new Hollywood, um, kind of the biggest, maybe other ones to, to, to mark your comparisons with be like Bonnie and Clyde. And, um, uh, what, what else comes to mind for new Hollywood? Uh, you know, the, the first, um, uh, the graduate, right. Same year, 67, yeah. 67 uh, butch casting the Sundance kid, um is do you think i don't know this has got to be high up there okay i mean yeah, it's, yeah to me it, it yeah it has its problems and there's some stuff that doesn't work for me <laughs> the car wash <laughs> that worked great for me i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> that's like that's such a scene where you're like oh yeah this is the, the thing about it too is it doesn't actually look i don't know whatever version i saw it looks beautiful it does. The cinema, the, the, whoever did the sort of restoration on this thing is just, yeah. it looks so crisp and wonderful. But yeah, scenes like that, you're like, is this Porky's? Is this like, <laughs> it's so bizarre, but it doesn't, yeah. you know, yeah. it's just like, why would they, but it, it makes sense within the story and like all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I would put it right, way high up there just because, you know, it, it could have easily be, 
became like a B movie prison movie, which is a whole exploitation type film, right? Yeah. Um, it could easily become that, but it transcends that basically immediately from the first moment. And there's some gorgeous scenes. Yes. I mean, just the interplay between the actors, especially like the one that sticks out to me is when he says he says goodbye to his mother. I was just gonna mention that. Yes. Like, God, that that's, that's and that's not one of the normally see in a movie no, no, a no, major no. studio film. Like it just it was too too much almost too emotional for right. mainstream. And it, and that's one of those scenes too, where it's like as a as an adult, right? With you know yeah. now, you know we're basically at the point where you know our our parents are becoming elderly, and mm-hmm. we're can, you know preparing to say our goodbyes. It could be any day, and yeah, um, exactly, it's. I think what makes it special for me, at least on this most recent viewing, as you know, a near forty year old, is like. There is this kind of um, playfulness that maybe was more resonant to me as a young person that kind of, you know, almost uh, mirrors the, like, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, when we're talking about, like, rebelling against the system and people feeling imprisoned, or even, like, Shawshank Redemption, right, would be Mm -hmm. also, you know, mostly takes place in the 40s, but, you know, second half of the film, I think, is probably in the 50s. where it's like, I feel more of like the internal stuff going on. And Paul Newman, I mean, it, it goes without saying, but like his performance can, you can see that in so many different ways, but you especially can see it on like two very different levels when you're watching it from the perspective as like one of his fellow inmates versus as someone who is like, just so sick of the systems and has like tried surviving them for so long. Um, not to say that like, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, going to like do anything like that, but that's part of that catharsis too, where it's like, we become more interested and more empathetic to this plight of somebody who feels like they're like, you know, about they should be about halfway through their life, but yeah. the doom of everything around them affects them internally, even if they, you know, can be the most popular, you know, top dog of the place they're at. And that feels that feels both complicated and simple in a way that like I don't imagine any other actor um, could have really done. Um, and there were so many amazing actors, you know, during the new Hollywood era. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just, it's so difficult to uh, kind of imagine how in one, in one movie, you've got James Dean with like the classic tragic young death and Paul Newman is like capturing that. And yet he still managed to like, not only be a good actor, but be like, be a good person. And like, yeah. it almost feels like he, you know, he was kind of um, living that uh, the way that you would hope actors would mm-hmm. when they play like this kind of complex role that uh, has so much humanity to it. Yeah. I mean, there's, um, there's no doubting that 
his performance here. And I'm, I don't think, was he nominated for best actor? I don't think he was. Maybe not. Yeah. I mean, George Kennedy won for best supporting actor, right. but he definitely didn't win. Um, uh, Paul Newman didn't win. Um, yeah. The performance is like off the charts, like the ability to, on the one hand, be so smooth, so cool and sort of express that externally, but it's those little moments and nuances of the way, you know, he walks or puts his hand a certain way or looks a certain way, his facial expressions that detail to us as the viewer that, yeah, there's something else and something more going on here. It's not just a guy who is rebelling because he's angry right. or filled with rage or disturbed mentally. Or dis- yeah. yeah. He's not disturbed. Like there's something there's something deeper going on there. And I think that, that uh, Paul Newman's like famous for this, but it's this sort of calmness and coolness to his demeanor. It sort of pulls us in deeper into his emotional state of being. And when we get there, we realize that like, Oh, it's pretty um, mysterious. Yeah. Like his motivations, why he's doing what he's doing. He doesn't seem like there's some simple, motivation for why he's rebelling you know i think and that's maybe for me the frustrating part of his character right because and and you see this with the inmates they're just like just give up like just you know just stop just stop fighting and i i I found that that was fascinating because on the one hand they do that in the fist fight Mm -hmm. where he's fighting george kennedy kennedy's character but then when he gives up um by when the the wardens and stuff are making him dig the the ditch over or the grave over and over again and he gives up and placates they kind of look at him in disgust and it's just sort of like this he's an unknowable person i think and he's an unknowable character and i think that's always intriguing because that's kind of how we all are ultimately mm-hmm. like we never really know other people's motivations or what's going on with them and we truly don't even know ourselves Right. And so it's, I think that's what makes this performance and I think centers the film, obviously, and gives it a sense of, I don't know, there's just, you want to look at it again and try and figure it out, but you know, you're not going to, but there's still this desire to kind of connect with it over and over again. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, it's obviously just an unbelievable uh, feat that he put on here. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I, the ending of this story is is so late sixties. Yeah, uh, I mean, think about the end of like Night of the Living Dead. You know, the hero is essentially shot by mm-hmm. racists, and they, like it, 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 it's bleak as hell. But I think it, you know, honestly, knowing what I know about that time period, a very honest and authentic expression of how people felt about society. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I, it actually got me thinking. If you draw a parallel um, to a previous uh, to our previous season of episodes, uh, the Stranger Than Fiction theme, mm-hmm. um, it, it almost feels I don't know. It, it make it, it seemed like a happy accident because it's almost like these two ideas rhyme. Is that even though yes, much of these set in the 1950s films um, are fictional. Uh, there is still this kind of sense where it's like you, 
you both are in shock and awe of um, the representations on screen. And also it still feels that's kind of like the point of having a period piece, even if it is in this case, like 10 set 10 years prior, because not only uh, is it, it's, I mean, the, it's based on a novel written by an ex con, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was on gang. So yeah. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. Um, and like so much of like throughout the, the history of cinema is, you know, people drawing from not only their personal experiences, but like their personal understanding or, you know, rend- uh, take on what that period felt like. Um, and one thing that stood out to me as well, going back to like the writing here is, uh, so that's who the, who wrote the novel, Don Pierce, and then who, uh, helped write him write the script was the same screenwriter, uh, who ends up doing Dog Day Afternoon with Sidney Lumet, um, you know, less than 10 years later, where yeah. you have this, once again, like, that's an actual true story, and still kind of in this same vein of, like, these these kinds of stranger than fiction moments happen um both in fiction and in real life because of the go these like unknowable uh people that finally like can't take it anymore um yeah. and ne- oh going to network there's another new hollywood right yeah exactly uh, <laughs> and i think that the reason it still resonates today um, because, you know, there's always that question of, uh, going back to last season as well, we were talking about like how even a movie like compulsion with Orson Welles, uh, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't age well. Um, diner, we just talked about a couple episodes Ooh, did not age well. horribly, yeah, really um, poorly. but the, 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 the truth of it at the heart of it, even if it's problematic, um, is that there is this you know, palpable sense of, um, like feeling lost and unsure what to do. And so it becomes, it it becomes conflict. And I don't know. I want to, I don't know. It feels like I'm, I am very glad to tease. I'm very eager to tease our upcoming, uh, (laughs) season of episodes, cycle of episodes, because uh we're finally going to get away i think from this kind of like really uh well maybe not it's going to probably be some pretty depressing stuff too but it'll be more fun because we're action we're action <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll tease that at the end of the show um yeah i don't know where, where, where do we go next from this <laughs> Well, let's talk about so Rebel without a I mean, yeah, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of like depressing movies, right? I mean, it's yes. ultimately, yeah. I mean, Rebel without a cause. You know, we wanted to end this with a movie that you know took place in the '50s, mm-hmm. was written in the '50s, and shot in the '50s. And so, Rebel without a cause is 1955, essentially, you know, based on a book. I think from the what was it the '40s? Yeah, 1944. Yep. Rebel without a cause, the hypnoanalyst analysis analysis of a criminal psychopath uh <laughs> which is written by an actual psychologist about a young inmate in a pennsylvania uh prison who is you know a sociopath um and so and it goes through all of these you know different scripting stages in the late 40s bounced around uh warner brothers and all of that marlon brando does a screen test in 1947 uh, and eventually gets greenlit uh, after nicholas ray kind of rewrites it and mm-hmm. changes the story a lot to sort of 
get away from this um, concept of like criminally insane young people uh, towards just sort of juvenile delinquency, um, and you know, you know, essentially. Uh, creates this concept of the modern teenager is what people say that this movie does and this script does. But yeah. once Nicholas Ray gets a hold of it, it gets a lot of a lot of um, sort of inertia and um, yeah. And then obviously, um, you know, when they uh, cast James Dean, then it it you know he was just on the cusp of stardom. Uh, I don't think East of Eden was out yet but then you know they're shooting rebel without a cause as a b movie in black and white but james dean becomes a star as they're shooting it and so they have to redo everything and say we want this in color bigger budget (laughs) cut everybody else besides him in the movie to some degree um and it really you know i had never seen it before and it has such a reputation i mean a massive reputation to this day you know as people that were born 30 plus years after it came out um you know it did for for whatever reason it has stuck around um and you know after i was watching it i love nicholas ray um you know a great director and i'm thinking of what was my favorite in a lonely place he did yes with um, yeah yeah, bogart unbelievable film one of my favorite films from that era um looking at it now it, you know, and this is going to feel, you know, a little bit spicy, perhaps. Ooh. It feels like one of those movies that meant a lot when it came out mm-hmm. and like changed the way that people thought about maybe teenagers and people of that age and maybe about the suburbs and all that sort of stuff. And But as I watch it now, it just feels the messaging feels more on the slight side than this sort of monumental defining picture of the 1950s i know that's probably slanderous to even suggest but (laughs) that's how it felt to me like obviously i'm a viewer who's seen it you know 50 60 years later no i mean i think that kind of we mentioned this at the top of the episode is you know james dean's uh, reputation alone precedes itself um as a you know cultural figure and um, everything from heartthrob to tragic story, uh, you take that in consideration along with the fact that the film itself, you know, the th- the pieces of it that have like, that have stood the test of time have all been like imagistic in nature, right? Like the, yeah. the quaffed pompadour, the, the chicken race, um, mm-hmm. these, these aren't like fully fleshed out. This is not, uh a part of like the cultural fabric of um cinema the way same way that like cool hand luke is i would say um and i and i think the the, just the word that kept coming to my mind like there's lots of things that i think are admirable about the film um because of the casting crew involved Mm -hmm. uh but the word that kept running through my mind is it's like this is this is melodrama. This is not totally, you know, yeah, uh, an attempt at neorealism. This yeah. is as far from bicycle thieves as you could imagine. Um, yeah, exactly. in terms of like presenting a slice of life type of um, yeah. uh, story. What do you think is like the main thing that's keeping it back, especially for somebody like Nicholas Ray? Maybe I mean, maybe I'm going to answer my own question, but like sure. he. He was 
you know, uh, one of those classic like apprentice type directors. And so he made a lot of amazing work in genre pictures. Is, is that, is that what we're dealing with here? Is this is like an, uh, um, uh, a modest attempt that became like, it, it ended up having a reputation that preceded itself because this was him kind of stepping outside of his noari wheelhouse. Yeah. I mean, I think that like what works here is like these flashes and moments of just pure cinema as Martin Scorsese. Would say. <laughs> I, mean, yes. I mean, truly though, like and the stuff that, that sticks out to me is like the brutality of the knife fight. Oh yeah. Yeah. And how vicious these teenagers are. I mean, can you imagine seeing this in the 1950s? <laughs> yeah. And and, right. and and myself as a teacher is just like, Jesus. when that, that happens outside the yeah. observatory, I'm just like, where the hell are the teachers? <laughs> like, what well, is I, I find that whole scene interesting because one of the little <laughs> tidbits here is that it, um, when they originally shot that, they shot that, that portion in black and white and they had a ton of extras. Sure. But when they got the green light, you got to go back and shoot it in color. They lost a lot of the extras. So it like the scene plays like a lot more isolated. It's almost like this small little pack of people that are attacking him. Mm-hmm. And it just, there's something about it that makes me so uncomfortable because Jim, right? That's his character. He doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to get involved. He doesn't want to, you know, play whatever machismo game that these guys are playing but he's sort of forced into it and there's such a sense of like desperation mm-hmm. and danger and violence and then what's the girl's name judy yeah wow i mean like what a character like the yeah. way that she like weaves yeah, really in like and out of on his side not you know intrigued by this bad boy but then also hates him and joins the pack against him really crazy stuff yeah. i mean there's a lot of it's super over the top. Right. Well, we right. never even mentioned like the homoeroticism in or Cool Hand Luke. Yeah, and, but yeah. it's also happening here with Plato, Salminio's character. Yeah. Um, and the Breen office was like, this is not good. You can't be doing this. Right? <laughs> I mean, because it's considered the first. I don't know if this is true, but they said this somewhere, like AFI, that like considered one of the first homosexually. A homosexual young man on screen, hmm. like explicitly, but it's not that explicit. But no, it's, it's still technically yeah. right. Uh, yeah, it's like it's explicit in the same way that like Peter Laurie was explicitly gay yeah. in all of his movies. Exactly. Um, what is because uh, I'm interested in this like um, trajectory. Can because it, it kind of hits on what we what I was just referring to, like connecting this to this stranger than fiction idea. Mm-hmm. Um, because it originates as like this nonfiction analysis of yes, the teenage, yeah, the teenage, especially like sociopathic teenage mind or ju- juvenile delinquent is the, the phrase that I see a lot in like um, the backstories of this film. Um, what is like, how do we get from this kind of self serious psychoanalytical study of the teenage mind to what ends up becoming like, the 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 touchstone kind of reference point for the stereotypical teenage rebel that is 
either it literally in the final product of this film um after you know you know james dean profile was raised and they go back and reshoot and color and all that as well as like the enduring images um that have lasted i mean i think that there's this i don't know it's is it is not a great film like so many of the other great films of this era and yet there's something that feels just like super important about the origin of how we as a culture as a society in america uh like misdiagnose and misunderstand teenagers yeah i mean i think that like what makes this film stick around ultimately and like where it has its stature is in two things one it's obviously ray like the way he brings the story to life in the sensationalism like that you know as you said he's kind of a genre guy and so he can do the b-movie stuff really freaking well Mm-hmm. And the best scenes in this are kind of the B movie scenes where they're overacting and the drama is super heightened. Um, but I honestly think it's James Dean. Yeah. Right. Like he's, you know, he was always like criticized as trying to be like Marlon Brando, especially East Eden. Here he's on a different plane. Right. Yeah. I don't, can you think of a similar character that you have seen in a movie like this where he inhabits so many different layers of masculinity and femininity at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. he is just up and down and he never, he never settles on a singular identity or psyche that were, that we would be comfortable with social norms. Right. He's right. really out there. And I think that like, that's one of the, re- which I find fascinating because that has been sanitized from this. Right completely sanitized because when you think of james dean you ask anybody you ask anybody in like the middle of, of nowheresville in the world they know who james dean is and they're like what he wears like a white t-shirt and like jeans <laughs> yeah and they're rolled up and there's a pack of cigarettes on the side and he's like super cool but when you watch this movie this guy's not cool no he's like, he's like my one of my favorite moments is like him rolling around in the plants uh, in the yeah. driveway with Natalie Wood and like, just like almost feels like an SNL sketch yeah. of like, uh, a character of a he's guy a, that can't like control his body. <laughs> he's like a loon, man. He's a total yeah. loon. But I think that like, there's something that we've lost in that where it's like, I don't know. It's, I, I do wonder when the people, when people saw this back in the fifties, were they like, well, this guy's crazy or this guy's whatever. <laughs> yeah. But, you know? And I, and I think the fact that he was killed, what, six months after this, mm-hmm. yeah. like what he, he was, had just finished filming giant and he died in like that September of that year. You know, it's sort of, he was frozen in time in a yeah. sense. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, we love that for some reason. People love mm. when people die young. I don't really get right. it. Um, I know. I know another. Uh, um, you know, young idol that died too young and was frozen in time and became known as the Messiah of a certain religion. Ah, Jesus, here we go. <laughs> uh, although he was twenty four, not thirty three. Uh, true. Good point. Good point. Um, but yeah, I think that there's. I don't know the answer to that question, but I. I think it's his early death. It's Ray making a sensational B movie, like really heightened with good money. Like just really goes, swings the fences. 
Um, yes, yes. He's so good at melodrama. He's amazing. I mean, In a Lonely Place is like an amazing melodrama, but it's like subdued. And like him subdued is like perfection. Yeah. But like, this is where it's just like, you know, blowing it's, everything up essentially. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I think it's almost unfortunate because I think the true story in this movie is the weirdness of James Dean. Yeah. And like, then so the, odd. And and there's notes from, you know, that time period where even if uh, audiences perhaps took it a different way because of the marketing and sensational uh, profile of James Dean, but like yeah. people on set were like, this guy's weird. <laughs> this guy uh, is improvising a lot. And yet like I, there was, there's like differing accounts uh, from fellow cast members and then crew members um uh including um uh what's his name um salminio uh yeah. where he's like Plato, yeah. yeah who played Plato, where like it almost felt like he was trying to like change the trajectory of the character yeah in real time you can see uh, that on screen yeah like, no one's telling him to act that way that is it, that's just him being him yeah and i think nicholas ray had a really close sometimes too close relationship with his actors right and um <laughs> yeah. natalie wood of course um and but really i mean nurtured james dean a lot and basically gave him a lot of leeway mm-hmm. um and that's you know that's what we get on screen right. um but i i do wonder like why don't why doesn't the reputation of or sort of the legend of this movie include that part of it? Why? Yeah, and, you know? yeah. and I think it's going back to your point about like him kind of sliding in and out of masculinity, femininity, uh, heterosexuality, and homosexuality. Yeah. That that in particular feels like it's just like ripe for a reassessment totally in the twenty twenties. Yeah, why are Zoomers not jumping all over this? <laughs> no, right. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, but it's all. But I, I, it's just. It has to be part of that like reputation proceeding itself thing. Um, yeah, I think that there's a lot going for this movie to like call for that, and yet um, I don't. It's it's weird the things that have you know been kind of reshaped. Uh, I had a very. Um, strong reaction to finally realizing that like uh the observatory that like this is the movie with the you know classic hollywood observatory and i yeah. just like became like red with anger is like okay now we need to lock up damien chazelle for what he did in la la land oh, come on. <laughs> Love la la land. <laughs> but like that's but like that's the iconography piece too where it's like yeah i mean even for like a a, a musical in 20 20 whatever 19 18 17 uh i think but it's still it's like repurposed i mean i i don't know we don't need to that's like a postmodern pastiche thing it's like right you guys you guys know this from cinema even if you've ever seen the movie you know it but that sanitization as well right where it's like oh 100 postmodern pastiche but not the gay stuff postmodern pastiche but not the weird stuff like yeah they just take the sprinkling of the coolness of james dean and put it in uh (laughs) ryan gosling's tap shoes you know what i mean (laughs) yes oh my god God. what a movie masterpiece okay uh we'll probably have to have a musicals (laughs) Oh, dude, it was so much fun. 
Okay. Um, do you want to do some trivia? Let's do some Pam? trivia. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so if you don't recall, dear listeners and Dan, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to read um, the opening uh, dis- narration or stage directions from the screenplay of five different films. All take place in the 1950s and the added twist this time for our finale episode they're mm. all movies like rebel without a cause that also were shot and released in the 1950s oh cool right. in fact they are arguably five of the most famous films of the 50s okay. so i'm trying to we were talking about a lot of depressing stuff i'm trying to end on a hopeful note i mm-hmm. think you're going to get most of these Ooh, I would doubt that. <laughs> i'm setting you up for failure i'm okay. so bad at this game first one Fade in. Exterior. New York Court of General Sessions. Day. A large, imposing building, gray, impressive as a back- background for the comings and goings of a number of ordinary people on an ordinary day. Camera holds on steps and building front from the distance and then dollies in slowly. Dissolve to. Interior. The lobby. Seething with activity, people of all kinds walking swiftly, purposely to and from elevators, newsstands, etc. Others standing, waiting. Guards stationed at various posts. Camera pans across lobby and then dollies into a bank of elevators. A number of people crowd into one of them. The door closes. Uh, Charming men? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Good. Um, Good. Yeah. All right, all right. Fish in a barrel. That's like the um, only 50s. <laughs> no! Okay. Unless it was like some like vague noir film, I probably don't know it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't think I got any noirs for you, but I think this is noir adjacent, so let's give this okay. one a try. Okay. Fade in, interior apartment, day, long shot. Although we do not see the foreground window frame, we see the whole background of a Greenwich Village street. We can see the rear of a number of assorted houses and small apartment buildings whose fronts face on the next crosstown street, sharply etched by the morning sun. Some are two stories high, others three. Some have peaked roofs, others are flat. There's a mixture of brick and wood and wrought iron in the construction. The apartment buildings have fire escapes, the others do not. Oh, this one. I like rear, rear window. Yeah, nice yeah, work. That's okay. A good one. Um, oh my gosh. The, I've actually seen that. So. <laughs> yeah. I, and the way that Hitchcock wrote his scripts in addition to filmed his Yikes. movies. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here we go. This one. Yeah, no, this one's noir adjacent too, if not okay. just straight up noir. Um, start the pick. I, I like the. Oh man, this guy had an interesting screenplay writing style too. Uh, sequence A. Start the picture with the actual street sign, stenciled on a curb stop. In the gutter lie dead leaves, scraps of paper, burnt mashes, and cigarette butts. It is early morning. Now the camera leaves the sign and moves east, the gray asphalt of the street filling the screen as speed accelerates to around 40 miles an hour. Traffic demarcations, white arrows, speed limit warnings, manhole covers, etc. flash by. Street sign. Street signs? Uh, no, n- noir or noir adjacent, depending on who Vertigo? you ask. No, Sunset Boulevard. Oh yeah, 1950. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, same house at the end of Road Without a Cause. Oh that's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. That's the Getty Mansion. Incredible. Oh. Okay, uh, it's okay. You're two for three. Two for number, three. Number four. Um, fade in city at night. A hearse of late 20s vintage is proceeding at a dignified pace along a half-deserted wintry street. Inside the hearse, there are four somber men in black, and a coffin, of course, with a wreath of chrysanthemums on top. Uh, One of the men is driving, another is in the seat beside him. The other two are sitting in the rear of the hearse, 
flanking the coffin. All four seem fully aware of the solemnity of the occasion. Now they hear a siren. Do you know it? No idea. The uh, on the waterfront? No, good good guess. Very good guess. Yeah, we didn't even talk about Brando, did we? Yeah. Um uh not a melodrama at all. It's actually a comedy, though it is also in black and white. 1959. What was it again? Sorry, I missed that. 1959. Um comedy involving the apartment? Oh, you got right, right cast like member. Sound like a hot. There you go. There yeah, you yeah, go. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Good, good. Um, uh, I'm going to give you a half point on that one. Right, and cool. last but not least, uh, Faden, Interior Dining Hall, uh, Sarah Sidden Society, Night. It is not a large room and jammed with tables, mostly four, but some for six and eight. A long table of honor for about 30 people has been placed upon a dais. Dinner is over, Demi tosses cigars and brandy. The overall effect is of worn elegance and dogged gentility. It is June. The camera, as it has been throughout the credit titles, is on the Sarah Siddons Award. It is a gold statuette about a foot high of Sarah Siddons as the tragic muse. Exquisitely framed in a nest of flowers, it rests on a miniature altar in the center of the table of honor. Yikes. This probably should be easy, huh? Mm. It's, a, it's a pretty big one. Um, best picture winner. Definitely like towards the top of the AFI top 100. Um, oh, wow. It, arguably, some people call it the first mainstream feminist film. First mainstream feminist film. 1952. 52. Um, Gilda? Oh, good guess. It's another movie with a uh, woman's name in the title, All About Eve. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which mm-hmm. I've actually never seen. Oh, man. That's okay. We'll, we'll do our top, feminist series top. as well. <laughs> okay, three and a half out of five. That's actually better than some That's of the past episodes. Than I usually do way better. <laughs> so, 1950s. What do we think? We're gonna do another decade one soon. Probably not. <laughs> no, no. Let's. That, that was tough. a good. It was a good one, but it's exhausting. Yeah, it's exhausting. Yeah, and it's hard to like. Um, yeah, you would think the connections would just be there, but they're just not. Because it's right. like the way people depict a decade are so disparate that it's hard yeah it's hard to see the themes everybody's got their own set of rose colored or nihilist colored glasses right yeah um you want to tease the next cycle of episodes how did we come to this one oh yeah we wanted to do the creator which is coming out in like a week or so the buzz is good and the buzz is good good yeah but who's the lead again John, uh, oh, John David Washington. God damn yeah. It. <laughs> As our friend Molly says, he's like a charisma vacuum. Um, <laughs> I'm excited for that, but we're doing future wars. Ooh, so wars yeah. that take place in the future. We got eight episodes this one. So it's super sized. Yes. Yes. A lot of great movies we're talking about. War of yes. the Worlds, 2005, the matrix Terminator, Omega man, aliens, uh, Starship Troopers, The Road, Doctor Strange Love, and, and a lot of other great films, Mad Max Fury Road. It's going to be a good one. It's going to be oh, yeah. it's going to be different for us because I feel like in the past, we've kind of purposely chosen films that we weren't maybe super familiar with that would stretch us a little bit. And this one, we're going to be in like some comfort zones. Right. So I wonder, I, I, a lot, I think of, a lot of fan favorites. Be, 
Yeah. It's going to lead to some interesting conversation. A lot of like <laughs> ranting and fighting, I feel like, is going to happen this season. Yeah. Next season. We, we are prone to fight fighting, especially about science fiction films. Yes. But it's also a cool genre, little theme because it doesn't exclusively feature science fiction films. Yeah, um, true. I'm, uh, I, I think that uh, it's going to be a fun one. And uh, we're booking the guests right now. Um, we'll be coming at you sometime in October, probably. Yeah, it's going to be fun. All right, thanks for listening. This has been Film Trace. Film Trace.